This is America on the Road, winner of the International Automotive Media Conference Gold Medal Award for Radio, and now in its 25th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. U.S. Automaker is doubling down on electric vehicles this week, and we'll tell you all about it. In fact, there might be more than one U.S. Automaker who's doing that, but we'll tell you about it. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com. Hi, I'm Jack Nered. With me is co-host Gino Effler, substituting for Chris Teague, who can't be with us this week. There are some technical problems preventing Chris from being with us. So Gino has uh, volunteered to step in. And Gino, of course, is Director of Corporate Communications for J.D. Power, uh, an old friend uh, and a very knowledgeable guy about the auto industry and about many things, actually. Gino, thanks so much for being with us as co-host. Jack, it's always a pleasure to be on the air with you. So let's let's get it rocking. I'm ready. Yeah, we got a lot to rock about. Our special guest is Tom Seal. He's vehicle line manager for the Jeep Grand Cherokee L. I got a chance to talk with him in depth about the new seven-passenger SUV as I drove it outside Detroit, Michigan uh, last week. So we'll chat with him at some length about it. Really nice vehicle uh, is a, a little hint about what we're going to be talking about. In the road test segment, I will give my review of the all-new 2022 Volkswagen Taos. They're small SUV, so we'll talk about that. Um, but before we get into that, uh, here is some of the latest automotive news from around the globe. And uh, you were wondering maybe what the global automaker was that is doubling down on EVs, and it turns out to be General Motors. They're going to spend something like $35 billion. That gets to be real money after a while. A 30- that is real money, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it sure yeah. is. Uh, it's kind of like your salary, I think, Gino. It's a, <laughs> a 30% jump. Yeah, on. I wish. Yeah, don't we uh, both? Uh, we'd both retire, I think. Uh, I, I would just live off you uh, somehow. Uh, <laughs> If, uh, but it's a 30% jump over the most recent forecast is it uh, is going to pursue uh, electric vehicle leadership. And I mean, that's a tall task, but I, I think all uh, the automakers are kind of eyeballing that. Certainly Hyundai has uh, made some uh, overtures in that direction fairly recently as well. And of course, Tesla is leading the parade there. What is your basic take over uh, GM's uh, d- desire to uh, become the leader in EVs? Do you know you think they have a shot at it? Oh, absolutely. I, I think uh, they, they have the capability. They have tremendous engineering at General Motors, always have. Uh, so with their manufacturing capability, yes. Can, can they get to a point where they are producing uh, volumes that... Uh, that exceed a lot of other smaller manufacturers? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I think the, the the key issue, there's many key issues here, but I, I think it's not just some magic pill that once they start producing cars, everything is going to be fantastic. Uh, there still is the issue of, are consumers ready for electric vehicles? And in many respects, they are, and in many respects, they are not. And two, can the infrastructure to support electric vehicle community, how is it going to continue to grow and develop? Uh, These aren't easy 
questions to answer. There, there's a lot of moving parts and, and so many elements come into play, not just on the manufacturing side, but on the utility side, you know, where this energy comes from. Uh, you know, we have to make sure that the, the grid, the electricity grid, the power grid in this country uh, is ready for this kind of influx of vehicles and, uh, you know, even more so the, the pricing of them. That's another big element. Yeah. Right now, all, we're, the, all the electric vehicles out there are pretty much luxury vehicles. They're very high priced. So is it going to be worth it financially for companies like GM to be making EVs that that cost twenty thousand, twenty five, thirty thousand. You know, is, is that a reasonable target for them, and can they do it at a profit? It's not going to be easy. I mean, there's a lot of blue sky about EVs out there. A lot of uh, you know happy talk about them. But as as you know, at JD Power, of course, the voice of the consumer. You are really well positioned to to understand how skeptical uh, the consumers are in general about electric vehicles. And I think there's a, a serious amount of consumer skepticism over that, uh, if not for any other reason, but uh, for the reason you just identified, the relatively high price of EVs versus uh, conventional cars of the same size. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that's it's a very big element. Um, you know, and what what is the, the number one selling segment uh, right now in, in America, it's it's SUVs, and and how many EV, uh, electric SUVs are out there or are coming? Uh, you know, there's a big gap there. There's not a lot. Uh, you know, we we have smaller, we have small vehicles or we have sedans, but you know, and and now we're and also trucks. Trucks are a huge part of the market in the United States, and. You know, finally, we, we have some companies who are talking about making trucks or moving towards making electric trucks, but we're not there yet. Um, so, you know, are they sa- really satisfying the consumer demand in the vehicle segment, too, you know, when you get into EVs? I, I just think there's, there's, there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. I think it's positive that, you know, companies are dedicating funds to this end, but they have to do it very carefully. They just, I just don't think uh, car manufacturers can just start go on, going on a spending spree. I mean, they have to lead the consumer. They have to get the consumer on board and ready to buy these cars. You know, we, we did a study recently about uh, electric vehicle consideration. And out of every 10 uh, consumers that we surveyed, two of them were absolutely said, absolutely, yes, I will consider a, a, an EV. And two of them said, absolutely not. I will, I will not consider buying an EV. The other six were iffy. They were like undecided. So the, the, the car companies and the retailers are going to have to focus on getting those six or that 60% of consumers to, to, to be more receptive to EVs. I mean, if you build them, that doesn't necessarily mean they'll come, right? Like, uh, like feel the dream. Right. Especially if they are priced a lot higher than right. the conventional vehicle, because, you know, not that many of us are blessed with uh, huge amounts of discretionary income that we can just uh, throw at transportation and spend another 20, 30, 40 percent on a vehicle just because it's an EV. Uh, you know, there are some who uh, are pushing for government subsidies or tax credits that will move us in that direction. But I think that's 
that's certainly an, an iffy kind of thing right now. I'm throwing uh, you know more money at this doesn't really seem like the answer. It's also interesting to me, Gino, and I want your take on this. There are some startup manufacturers in this business, uh, you know, Lucid, Rivian, Canoe, some some vehicles that are uh, trying to, I think, take a page from Tesla. What do you think their chances are? And of course, Lordstown Motors uh, that uh, is operating where a General Motors plant used to be. Uh, what's your prediction mm-hmm. about uh, some of these, uh, the prospects of some of these companies? Well, I, I'm not going to get into company by company, but I think that it, it looks like many of them are well-funded uh, because it takes a lot of money to design a vehicle, build a vehicle, get a plant going before you can sell the first vehicle. Uh, it's going to lo- take a lot of time before they recoup all of that investment. Uh, many of them are properly financed, and they seem to have, from what we can tell so far, I haven't uh, driven some of these vehicles, and I don't believe you have either, but that some of the technology looks very inviting. The styling looks real good. There's great potential there. You know, but it's not an easy road to hoe, as they say. They're going to have to be looking at this as a long-term win, not a short-term win, uh, because there is no real short-term. I mean, you know, people think that Tesla is still a brand new car company, and in many respects they are, but how many years have they been selling cars now? Well, more than 10? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's so, yeah. yeah. And, and yet the, you know, the EV market is still small, but do these other companies have the potential to succeed? Uh, yes, some of them do. Some of them do. And, and I think uh, time will tell to see how, how effective they are in, in coming out with these models that have good quality, that resonate with the consumers, you know, because I don't think they're going to get a whole lot of chances. You know, when, when those first vehicles come out, if, if they don't have good quality, if they're disappointing their owners, those, those owners, those people who took that chance the first time around, they're not necessarily going to be ambassadors for that brand. They're going to be more detractors. So they are they are going to be influencers, that's for sure. So it's it's a, it's a tough road to hope for them. But and you know, and another thing that I think uh, Jack that a lot of them are going to be facing is once a lot of the more mature OEMs, the bigger global car companies, start coming out with their models. Uh, some of those smaller companies may lose uh, in the PR the PR battles. You know, they're not going to get as much attention, as much media attention as some of the larger manufacturers are going to get. So that's a challenge too. Big time. I mean, I have said this over and over again. Uh, if there's a a business where you have you have uh, you know heavily entrenched and very politically connected uh, in many countries, including in the United States. Uh, these giant companies uh, that are incredibly capital intensive, that's the car industry. I mean, that's a very daunting industry to try and start up a new uh, company. And, you know, it's not like making salad dressing or, you know, some kind of gardening product or, you know, name a million other things where you can uh, jump in and and make some headway. I mean, you, you need billions just to start playing, you're a small player with billions of dollars uh, in this industry. So it's it's certainly not going to be yeah. easy for any of these EV uh, startups. I think to to succeed. And the profit the profit margins, Jack, as you know, are are minuscule. You know, the car companies make just a, a 
a, pin, a pittance of percentage of profit on on their product versus uh, you know other companies that uh, that make double digit or you know fifty percent or higher uh, profit on whatever it is they're making or selling. So it's it's not a big margin industry. Yeah, absolutely. It? I mean, you look at tech tech companies and and what they make and what their markup is versus what what's happening in the, the mature auto industry and it's mature even if we change kind of power plant it's mature so it will be interesting to see how this unfolds i appreciate your perspective when we come back we're going to be looking at a, a vehicle that i road tested the all new 2022 Volkswagen Taos very exciting product from uh, Volkswagen and uh, i think you'll be interested in what i have to say about it so uh, stay with us for that. With Gino Effler, this is Jack Nierad here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Gino Effler as our guest co-host. This is Jack Nierad with you. We thank Gino for being with us. And we can't wait to have Chris Teague rejoin us uh, next week. He's... Uh, technically uh, unable to to be with us this this time around but we're we're graced with the the brilliance of Gino Effler and uh, we love having There you him go. With us. That's gonna, better. Yeah, well and rightly so. You gotta, you. He is the director of corporate communications <laughs> at JD Power, a really smart guy about the auto industry and about a lot of other things too. Uh, I have learned a lot from Gino through the years. Uh, he's also a good left-handed hitter, which I always respect. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there you have it. It is road test time, and I think I've got a pretty interesting road test vehicle to talk about. It is a Volkswagen Taos. T-A-O-S is, the, is I guess I should spell it out because it's not necessarily over the radio uh, as clear to you as it might be. But this is their smallest crossover utility. And, of course, Volkswagen... Uh, was very reluctant to get into the the crossover, the sport utility game, as were most German brands uh, not long ago. But now they've jumped in with both feet, uh, maybe all feet. Uh, maybe they have more than two. Uh, and they are... Yeah, so, uh, you know, so, so they actually kind of think this is a good category, huh? Ah, absolutely. They, you know, they kind of come over to the fact that, hey, this is hot. We should sell what people actually want to buy here in the United States. <laughs> and I think it's a, a, a great idea. Uh, the Taos is their conventionally powered uh, small crossover utility, and they also have a, a new battery electric crossover, I think a little larger size, the ID4. I think it maybe is one size up. It's a compact utility as opposed to a subcompact. But uh, they're coming to the market with two new uh, crossovers in the, the short span of time here. And, of course, uh, this is a vehicle that competes with vehicles like the Kia Seltos, the Chevrolet Trailblazer, and the Honda HRV, which is one of the 800-pound gorillas, I think, of the segment. To put it into context, it's about nine and a half inches shorter than the Volkswagen Tiguan, which is the compact mm. in the segment. So uh, I think this is a, a fairly hot segment. What do you think of, where do you think this segment is going, Gino? Very hot, Jack. It's uh, it, you know, it, it's it's been red hot for a for a number of years, and and I don't see it cooling off. It's just uh, the the type of vehicle that most people want, and you know, it used to be in the old days that it, when you got an SUV, you'd sacrifice something with fuel economy. That just isn't the case anymore. You know, the uh, the engines these days. Are, are tremendous. You get great gas mileage whether you're whether you're in a small sedan or a big SUV. So, 
This gives people space. It gives them some seating elevation, gives them a good view of the road, and that's a lot of security in that regard. Uh, I think it's a it's a great category, and it's uh, you know it's not going to slow down. So good for Volkswagen for uh, for being in the mix there. Right, and uh, you know, speaking of space, it gives them almost as much space as the Tiguan does. So that is is pretty good. I mean, uh, for one thing, the Taos uses height to kind of make it a little bit boxier, which I think is is great for packaging. I think that's what people want. They want utility. They want space. They want ability to pack things in there or people in there, depending on what they want. In terms of engine and performance, I'd say pretty good stuff. I had a chance to drive this uh, outside Malibu, California, in the hills outside Malibu. I had a blast doing that, so I enjoyed it. It's 158 horsepower, which doesn't seem all that impressive, but in a vehicle uh, this, you know, reasonably small, it, it made it pretty agile. It has an eight-speed automatic transmission, a real geared transmission, which I think is an advantage. Uh, it's also available with four-motion all-wheel drive. Uh, when uh, vehicles with that have the seven-speed dual-clutch automatic, which is kind of a shift-it-yourself automatic if you want to shift it, so it feels nice like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, More horsepower than, say, the HRV. It has 141 horsepower. I mean, uh, I think when people look at a vehicle like the Taos, they'd like to believe that they can have some some fun driving it. Don't you think so, Gino? Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, Jack, when when you did drive it, was how much of the driving experience was on pavement? How much was off pavement? Or did they just focus this thing totally on pavement? It was all on pavement, and I think that's the way a lot of these things are going. I mean, recently, of course, I, mm-hmm. I tested the uh, the new Jeep Grand Cherokee L, and that has a, a definite off-pavement kind of tilt to it as well. And it's a Jeep, mm-hmm. so they want that. But I think most companies that are offering crossovers these days, you know, these kind of new-age SUVs that are really uh, essentially on car platforms, I mean, they're, they're street vehicles. And, uh, you know, we've kind of said this on the show before, and I'd like your take on it but i think these basically are the new car i mean sedans are kind yeah. of irrelevant now yeah. and this is these are really the new four doors out there in many respects i think you're right it's 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 nobody buys one of these cars because of its off pavement capabilities but it's like oh well it, ha- it i can do that if i need to like oh if i if I drive to my cousin's uh, ranch, you know, once every five years and it has a dirt road, I'm, you know, I'm still going to be comfortable driving this thing on it. Okay, fine. But yeah, that's not why people buy them. But it's always interesting to me, having worked for manufacturers in the past, to see how they present the vehicle to you, the journalists. Is it, and, and it seems like they said, yeah, we're just going to focus on this vehicle's capabilities on pavement. You know, maybe straight line, maybe going up some hills, down some hills, some curvy roads, this and that. Uh, so you can see how well it handles on pavement and how comfortable it is. So I, I totally get that. But yes, yeah, uh, they're not necessarily going to promote these kinds of vehicles uh, focused on the off-road capability or the off-pavement capability. No, definitely not. Although in terms of hauling stuff, it has pretty significant capability. I mean, it has 27.9 cubic feet of luggage space in the front drive versions. That's behind the second row of seats. It's a five-passenger vehicle. So that's maybe two or three times the trunk space in a lot of vehicles. I mean, that's just more yeah. utility. Uh, just uh, And it, that climbs up to 65.9 cubic feet 
uh, if you drop down the, the rear seat. So, you know, for a, a couple going camping or something like that, I mean, uh, you've just got an awesome a lot amount of space. space. Yeah, really good yeah. stuff. Here's something I, I you know. What's this thing cost? Well, it's a good question, uh, and uh, oh, okay. yeah, I'm glad you're asking good questions. That's a, that's a journalist <laughs> type of question, so that's that's good. Uh, it bases at, um, let me see here. I've got it in my notes. Uh, tr- the starting price is twenty four one ninety, twenty four thousand one hundred ninety dollars. That includes an eleven ninety five destination fee. These <laughs> the size of the, the destination fees. Uh, the show, uh, so-called shipping charge is always amusing to me now, but that has a uh, pretty nice uh, array of equipment, including wired Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, so that's good. And then you can take it mm-hmm. up to the SEL version is the top-of-the-line version, and so that has even the IQ Drive Travel Assist hands-on semi-autonomous driving system, which is pretty cool. You kind of it steers itself within the lane, uh, using sensors to steer itself within the lane. So that's fairly cool. And that costs about $33,000 in terms of base price. Okay. You can obviously option it up higher than that. But that has leather seats and a, an eight-speaker Beats audio system as well. So, you know, this is a vehicle, certainly for, uh, for under $35,000, you can get all the bells and whistles. For around $30,000, you can get a ton of stuff. And I think that's just just plain uh, a good value. I think they're going to do extremely well with the Volkswagen Taos. Ah, interesting. And you know, the pricing thing always uh, uh, always entertains me for, for a variety of reasons. You know, wh- where the where the market is right now. You know, with with manufacturers not being able to produce as many cars as they would like because of the you know the chip shortage. Their their production is way down. Uh, that that doesn't affect the demand. People still want cars, and so what what it's doing is it's driving uh, people to pay closer to MSRP for cars than they have in the past. And that in the month of May, this is interesting, Jack. I'm going to let you guess this figure, but in the month of May, in the U.S., the average transaction price, retail transaction price, set an all-time monthly record. All right. What do you think the average transaction price was in the month of May in the United States? I think, and I have not looked at this, so I and I could be way wrong, but I don't think so. I think I'm pretty close. Oh, I'll I, let you know if you're way wrong. Uh, of course, or even if I'm right, but you won't feel as good about yourself if that happens. I would say it's uh, $38,000. That's very, very close, Jack. It's $38,255. That's the average New vehicle retail transaction price in the month of May. Right, and I haven't seen the most. I haven't seen the most recent figures, but uh, as, as you point out, it's. I have been tracking them over time, so I had a little bit of advantage versus the average person on the street in tracking that. But uh, I think you're pointing out that's as high as it's ever been. Yeah, and uh, it's it's amazing. Incentives, you know, uh, dealer incentives are are going way down, so the OEMs aren't incentivizing the dealer to incentivize the consumer to come in and buy vehicles because the vehicles are not sitting on the lots like they like they were you know a year or two ago a, a typical what we call the the days the number of days that a car would sit on a lot before it was sold right the, the average day, number of days was like eight yeah day supply yeah. day supply was like 80 some days 80 some days that's that's almost three months this is a couple years ago now 
it's it's just over 40 days. It's like 44 days, I think it was the last time I last time I checked it uh, a few weeks ago. At 47 days, I, I correct myself. So it's it's amazing where we are and how fast cars are turning. And so it's become a huge benefit or bonus to dealers because they're not paying their bank or their lender to to uh, keep those cars on their showroom floor. They're getting them in and they're selling them. And they're selling a higher percentage of vehicles uh, at MSRP uh, than they ever have before. So is this a good time to, to buy a new car? Well, hmm, maybe, maybe not. It's, it's never, you know, I'm not the one who, who's going to look at every individual's finances and tell them this is a good time or a bad time. But then you also have to look, Jack, at the used car market. And the used car market has skyrocketed as well. Uh, the, 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 the prices there uh, are up dramatically. You know, wholesale prices, gosh, I think they're up for, uh, they've gone up for the last 20 consecutive weeks. And they're up, I believe, like 37% from a year ago. You know, it's just, it's amazing. It really is a mind blower. It, it is a mind blower. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, coming out of the pandemic, and certainly we're not 100% out of the woods yet, but certainly we're in uh, much no. better shape than uh, maybe we imagined we would be even a few months ago and uh, coming out of it. It's in in some ways like a war ending, right? I mean, there's a lot of uh, pent up demand. People weren't buying; they weren't out. They weren't doing the same things that they did. Uh, you know, certainly they want to go out to eat, they want a vacation, and they want to buy vehicles. These are things yeah. that uh, people yep. want to do. They've saved some money. Uh, they have some money in their pockets for one reason or another, and uh, they're ready to spend. So it's it's been. Uh, a really interesting time, I think, for car dealers and the car industry as a whole. Yeah, that, that there's there's still. I'm not saying there aren't deals out there that that people can't find. They're just not everywhere. You know, in, in certain times, uh, dealers uh, and OEMs are putting tons of incentive money on it to try and entice you to buy this new car. Uh, you know, zero percent down or you know zero percent financing, whatever kind of deals that they could make. And we saw a lot of that happen at the beginning of the pandemic in, in 2020. But then after we took that dip, it got, you know, it, the, the market kind of got way down after a few months, but then it rebounded and it's rebounding very strongly. So there are deals. You just have to be a lot more committed to researching and, and doing your research as a shopper and finding the right deal for you. Right, and some people don't you know don't have discretion when they as to when they buy a car. I mean, if you need a car, if you're moving yep. out of state, you're changing jobs, something else is going on. Uh, you need a car now, and you essentially have to buy a car no matter what the market is telling you. Uh, it becomes yeah. a necessity to you, and uh, this is a difficult time uh, coming out of a, a, a very good time to buy a car. We're into a very difficult time now, I think, to buy a car, or at least an expensive time. Uh, and the supply uh, of both new and used cars, uh, certainly at a price, but just in general, uh, is at a premium. I know people who basically could not find a vehicle they wanted. Uh, <laughs> they had to go to their mm -hmm. second, third, or fourth choice to get a vehicle uh, just to, to make do. Yeah, in many respects, it's, it's, you're not going to get the vehicle you want by going to the dealership, you know, that one that has the exact combination of features or options that you want, because it, it may not exist 
uh, at your dealer or or any dealer right now because the the inventory is so low. So you know, hey, one option if if you have the foresight as a consumer and, and you can do this, you know, look far enough down the line, you you could still go to a to a dealer and say, okay, this is what I want you to order me, and and that dealer can place the order with the manufacturer, and your car may not be built for a month or two, or how you know it may take you up to six months to get that yeah. car, but you know that car is coming. It's coming expressly for you. Now, a lot of people can't foresee into the future for six months, but if you can, that's definitely an option. I I think another option that people for the short term have to consider if they can't afford a new car or they they can't find the new car they want, then maybe you look at a look at a a certified pre-owned car, you know, something that's been checked out by that uh, manufacturer and meets a certain specific list of of checks and uh, you know it's warranted and you go that route and use and if the used vehicle route isn't you know if it's still too much for what you want right now the other option is take care of the current car you have spend some money and get it serviced you know make it last a little bit longer uh, till you get to a point where the market comes back to you and and are we going to see a flattening at some point soon or is it are we going to reach the peak of this used car uh, market uh, yes, you know I think we will. It's I can't tell you what month it's going to be or exactly when it's going to be, but yeah, we're going to get there. And, and um, you know, it's just how long do people have to to wait and and play it out? That's what they have to determine. Well, I mean, it has gotten to the point where I have actually heard dealers advertising to people, "Hey, if you've got a um, a car in your driveway that you haven't been driving for a while." Sell it to me, <laughs> you know. I will. I will pay you good money for it right now because they know they can turn that car for a profit very rapidly. So, if you are a private party right now, if you're an individual, I guess we're all private parties. You're not a public party, are you, Gina? No, you're a <laughs> no, private party. And if you got a vehicle and you're not That's using right. it, and you, this is a great time to go about selling that vehicle, you're going to get top dollar for it. You're not. You're going to get top dollar for it if you do some research. But if you do a reasonable amount of research and figure out what that vehicle is worth, this is a great time to sell or trade in a used car. Yeah, and, and I'm, I, I'll tell you, I'm personally in a position right now where my wife is leasing a car. The lease is up in September. And, you know, sometimes uh, companies will let you get out of a lease early if you stay with the brand, you know, lease another car from them. Well, I, you know, the, the, way these manuf- the way these dealers and manufacturers are working right now, I, I want to approach them and say, okay, hey, if I turn this car in now, you know, rather than waiting until September, what kind of a deal can you work for me, you know, to stay in the brand? And, and that way I can, then I'm on some decent negotiating footage, you know, of, or footing uh, to negotiate that, that new lease because, believe me, they want that lease vehicle back because they can sell it and make a lot more money than perhaps they could have two years ago, you know, with a similar vehicle. Right. And I would point out, too, if anybody out there, uh, you included, you know, if you're coming to the end of the lease, oh yeah, you can buy that car for the residual value in the contract. And I'll tell you, that residual value might be much lower than the, the current market value of that vehicle because... Uh, used cars yeah. have shot up in in value uh, over the uh, last several months, and that uh, value was established yep. probably three years ago. 
So it's a, a real good opportunity for people to, uh, you know, make some money, turn things around a little bit. And, Absolutely. Uh, Residual so values, that's that. a, another thing that uh, J.D. Power is known for with our, uh, uh, our company, uh, uh, ALG, that, uh, that basically sets residual values for the industry. They, we, uh, we acquired them uh, at the end of last year, and, uh, yeah, they're, they're spot on when it comes to forecasting, you know, the, what a car is going to be worth in three years, you know, once it's, when it's new, from new until three years later. So it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating business, this, this car industry right now, isn't it? It absolutely is. And uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about somebody who is right in the midst of it. His name is Tom Seal. He's vehicle line manager for Jeep and the Jeep Grand Cherokee L, which I had a chance to drive uh, outside Detroit uh, last week. Fascinating car, fascinating guy. I think he's got a lot of interesting things to say about it. So stay with us for that with Gino Effler. This is Jack Nerad, and we thank you so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Nerad with you, and we are on location outside Chelsea, Michigan, and uh, driving the all-new Jeep Grand Cherokee L. And with me is an absolute expert on that, uh, the engineering genius behind it, Tom Seal. So thanks so much for being with us. Uh, tell us a bit about, uh, tell us more than a bit about, <laughs> but uh, start us off with what we should know, what consumers should know about the Grand Cherokee L. There's really two things that I believe and guided the redesign or the design of the new Grand Cherokee. First off was, it's a Grand Cherokee. Take nothing away from the customer. So the customer's expectations in terms of a Grand Cherokee, when they move into the L, they move into the fifth generation Grand Cherokee, those expectations have been met and exceeded in many, many attributes. And I think the, the most interesting attribute is the L, the third row. Everyone says, my Grand Cherokee is a two-row. It's always been a two-row. The issue is, or not the issue, but we listen to our customer base. Our customer base came to us and said, you know, we really want that third row, which was a challenge we took on to engineer the car that is truly Grand Cherokee and truly a Jeep and also a third row. Right. It seems like Jeep has been doing everything right for the last 20 years, except for <laughs> putting a third row in the Grand Cherokee or making a three-row vehicle that really resonated in the marketplace. And so now you're taking another swing at that pitch. What's different about it this time? What's different about it this time is it's an all-new architecture that allowed us to really engineer the third row with no compromises. Anybody can put a third row into a vehicle. When you talk Jeep, we talk about being authentic. And in many of the attributes of the third row, if we couldn't do it right, we're not going to do it. And as you saw this morning, as we went through the Eastern Market reviews, uh, our model responsible, Mario Holmes, six foot four, climbed into the back of that third row, no problems, fully comfortable. Right. We seem very comfortable back then. Yes. Yeah. So it worked out well. It's, and you make the, the access very easy, too, don't you? We do a pitch and slide seat that allows, and this is a, a uh, new item for Jeep as well. It allows the customer to pitch the slide uh, seat, slide it forward so you can get to the third row. But when it comes back down, 
it's also adjustable up to 180 millimeters so that we can find the balance between the third row and the second row occupants. There's nothing worse than you approach a third row vehicle and everybody kind of looks at each other and says, okay, who's going to get in the third row? Right. We were able to optimize the position of the second row with the sliding so that both occupants can be comfortable. Yeah. Well, I kind of jumped the gun there with talking about third row, but it kind of makes sense to do. But give us the high hard ones about the vehicle. You know, what should people know about the vehicle, basically? Powertrain, those kinds of things that uh, kind of set up the vehicle for folks. So there's really three things when we approach the L. It's about capability, because it's a Jeep. It's about dynamics, and it's about technology. In terms of capability, we took the bar the next level up with a full active T-case up front that allows us to constantly adjust the torque from front to rear. The, the fourth generation, this is an enhancement over that, which is really blind to the customers, but it's, they will experience an enhanced driving experience in off-road, snow, and all weather conditions, so that's why we did it. In, in terms of dynamics in the car, one of the things that we went after is the driving experience. We, what we did was specifically tune the steering in the car so that it is what I call point and shoot. Very linear, very accurate, which gives you the dynamics that you need. But we also added multi-link suspensions throughout the entire underbody that allowed us to tune every single element of NVH, the noise vibration, the handling, and then of course the off-road capability. And then lastly, what we really need to tout is the technology. Grand Cherokee customers have always been technology driven. They want to know, they want to achieve. What we did was create an all new electrical architecture for this platform. And someone says, well, why did you do that? Well, if we look at how fast technology is moving and things that are evolving, we knew very early on that we would need the bandwidth necessary to support future enhancements going forward. I mean, just the wiring harness alone is 50 pounds, right? Something like that. So Pretty close. Your <laughs> so, numbers, you obviously did the plant tour and, yeah, and a, know, know that one because... <laughs> That's the only one I remember probably. It, no, it is, it's interesting because of all the complexity that is there and the weight of that harness, it's actually robotically loaded to the car. This is something that for quality reasons and also for ergonomic and safety reasons of the occupants, a decision we made early on. This complexity, what's right for everybody, we'll have a robot load it to the car. Let's talk a bit about powertrains. Uh, you know, just walk us through what uh, the vehicle can be equipped with. And, and then, of course, various four-wheel drive systems are important to you, not yes. necessarily to other yes. brands, but they're very important to you. So walk us through that, too. So first, first of all, for the next generation, we started with our tried-and-true powertrains. It, the, the Pentastar V6, 3.6 liters, um, really offers the customer the outstanding benefit and performance of a V6 and an SUV. And the fact that we've made the car larger, but maintain the same test weight class, as I mentioned to you, the WK customer, the current customer, is not gonna experience any differences. It'll feel the same, if not better, going forward. Next, we have the tried and true 5.7 Hemi. This is a lower volume. The Pentastar is our volume application. This is a lower volume for that customer that really wants the towing, that really has the, um, they have the boats, and as you'll hear today, or you can see we have a, a, a boat here that you can do a towing demonstration on, but it's up to 7,200 pounds of towing capability. 
And that is critical to a Grand Cherokee customer's lifestyle. They have that go anywhere, do anything. If they want to take that boat, that camper, whatever, they have the ability to do that. We're starting with those, and as you know, we have announced uh, later this year we will be talking about electrification mm -hmm. going forward, and that of course brings different powertrains with it. But on July 8th, uh, Stellantis has a electrification event where a lot of that will be discussed and in disclosed in detail. Okay, well, I'll keep my eye out for that. I mean, even the V6 has a fairly robust towing ability, doesn't it? 6,200 pounds. Yeah. So it's, I mean, there's nothing, that's a, that's your jet skis, your average uh, ski boat. Uh, but when you get into the bigger items, you know, clearly you would yeah. like more power. Well, I, I recently drove and, and test drove the uh, 2022 Nissan Pathfinder. And they were touting 6,000 pounds of towing as their max towing. And that's a big advantage to them. So, you know, you're ahead of that with the... Your I like 6,200 6, better. Yeah, yeah you like 6,200 <laughs> better. And you probably like, uh, you know more than 7,000 pounds with the V8 even better than that. So, important. Let's, let's talk a bit about what uh, engineering challenges you had to overcome to make all this happen. Because it, it struck me that there's a lot of things you had to do, right, to, to, to get the inherent Jeepness in the, in the vehicle, for example. Talk a bit about that. So the first thing we do in any new architecture is we set up the powertrain. That is, that is the building block in the foundation. And one of the requirements to improve dynamics and on-road is we wanted a lower CG. What that means is we wanted Center to lower... gravity. Thank you very much for clarifying. As an engineer, I always speak in acronyms, and sometimes that doesn't uh, translate. So we wanted a lower center of gravity at the front end. So we wanted to lower the engine. But we're a 4x4 vehicle. There's an axle up there that has to be accounted for. And we're not going to compromise any ground clearance. We're a Jeep. So if you can envision this, we have to actually push the engine down into the front axle. The solution we came up with is fairly unique in that the front axle goes through the oil pan. Mm. It's a cast aluminum structural oil pan that allows us to mount the front axle and differential drive to that particular That's kind entry. of race car technology. I've heard of race cars doing that in the it's, rear sometimes. It's not yeah, a new technology yeah, yeah. to your point, but I think this is really our application to, to turn it into a Jeep because well, in a production vehicle it's pretty amazing. I yes. Think. Yeah. Yes. So once the powertrain is positioned, we also included we have active engine mounts. And active engine mounts is is what it does is it changes the vibration characteristics of the engine. Whether you're in idle or at highway speed, you're getting the optimum isolation from the engine mount. Going backward, as you lay an architecture out, there's something called powertrain bending, which this large mass that is there in the engine tends to vibrate at a natural frequency. What you do is you position all the supports and the engine mounts on the ideal location so none of that vibration is transferred into the occupant's um, seat or floor. Uh, it's all do you kind of try to counter that vibration or you just position the stuff so it, it doesn't translate the transmit the vibration. So everything that we can to counter it within the powertrain is done, but there's always an inherent amount, inherent amount of vibration in anything yeah. in the world. This microphone, everything sure. has there's a an vibration. inherent vibration in it. So right. as an engineer, you have to position the mounts in the ideal locations so that you minimize what comes into the occupant's uh, feet and floor going forward. The other thing that's interesting is you have to align the prop shaft at the appropriate angle. The engine position is set, 
I now have my rear spindle set, and now I've got to connect the two with a prop shaft going rearward. That has to be lined for all frequencies and all vibration content. Again, blind to the customer. Customer shouldn't even know there's a prop shaft there. We did that with setting up the new rear differential that allowed us to also maintain the rear ELSD. That's the electronic limited slip differential, which in certain conditions when required, we can move 100% of the drive torque to either left or right wheel in the rear of the car. The other challenge when you come forward is, is now I got a powertrain. The next thing you do is set up the chassis, then the next thing you do is set up the body, then you move to the interior of the car. The chassis, we went for multi-link suspensions all around the car. Multi-link is really good because it allows the engineers to, as I call it, earn their pay. And they earn their pay by each link is specifically targeted for a function. There's the links that manage the vibration. There's the links that manage the handling loads. And of course, since we are a Jeep, there's the links that manage all the off-road loads that, again, today as you drive the course, you'll experience Yeah, that. and they've got to be robust and more robust than a typical road car. Absolutely. Because you're going to get airborne sometimes Absolutely. to do some strange thing. You will, you will have events here out at the Proving Grounds today where three wheels will be off the ground and you'll be resting on one for a momentary and then you'll transfer back to two. So setting that whole chassis up is absolutely critical to maintaining the jeepness or being, as I put it in this morning's discussion, earning our seven slots. We always want to earn the right to have that Jeep and those seven slots on the front of the car. When we move to the interior of the car, it's all about the Grand Cherokee technology and comfort and aesthetics. The technology in the car, with the new electrical architecture, we've introduced active drive assist to the customer base today. And I've got to tried that out. I didn't get a chance to do that earlier. Oh, so definitely. Do that. Definitely. It's a hands-on system, which is all roads, not just limited to type one highways. Any, any road surface where between a camera, three radars in the front and two radars in the rear, and a predictive algorithm that basically analyzes the trajectory of the vehicle, the trajectory of the road, and steers the car to the lane center. So the car is seeing probably more than you could ever see, right, as a driver. Absolutely. You know, when it's, when it's in that mode. Absolutely. And it's a, le describe level two. Uh, so, so level two, there's, in the industry, we have two, two analogies, and thank you for the clarification. Level two is hands-on, eyes off. What it means is you are still in command of the vehicle, you have your hands on the steering wheel, but the fact that the machine is managing a lot that's going on there, you're allowed to look around in more detail. Level two plus. And the machine is basically steering and you know potentially, potentially braking? Yes. Uh, the vehicle, yes. those kind of things, right? Yes. It starts with, and thank you for also clarifying that, yeah. it starts with very similar to the current customer has adaptive cruise control. The current Grand Cherokee customer very used to, used to um, adaptive cruise control and lane management. What we have now is adaptive cruise control with active lane management, which the difference is from the old to the new. The old car kept you in bounds with the lanes. The new car keeps you in the center, kind of center, center of it going forward. And that's the, that's the steering and the same attributes that are there. And so the car has sensors, it has the Absolutely. camera, radars, all around, understanding what's around it, 
and in a, in a lot of ways, yeah, constantly, constantly processing yeah. the information. And that's available on on what level and up of the of the so, Grand Cherokee. So the uh, ALM active lane management is available uh, starting at the limited model and okay. going all the way up. Ah, okay. The L2, which is the um, hands-on uh, active drive assist, that starts at the Overland model and moves up from there. Okay, so I've got to get my butt into one of those uh, before, before the day is over. Yes. Scope that out. Talk a bit about interior comfort because uh, it's a critical thing. Obviously, people want three rows. Uh, and then uh, they want more accommodation. They want more cargo accommodation, but they also want to take more people. It, it, it always struck me as kind of funny that you have a three-row vehicle that is a six-passenger when a sedan is a five-passenger vehicle, right? Uh, so you're, you're doing a lot to gain one more passenger spot. On the other hand, you can add a bench seat in the middle and, you know, up it to seven, which yes. is which is two more people. So give me the parameters about you know how you how you go about scoping out how big the second row should be, what you should what kind of accommodation should be there, what the third row should be. So walk me through the thinking. So first off, we start with um, the package of the occupant, and we look at headroom, legroom, but then mo more importantly, sometimes we look at thigh angle and knee angle because. Yes, you may have good legroom, but if your thigh is at an angle where it's, it's um, vertical, you're not going to be comfortable. There are very well-developed algorithms that allow us to understand the comfort index of an occupant based on their seating position. So what we start with is what we consider the ideal, you know, perfect, I'm, I'm beyond comfortable, I could take a nap type position. We put that into the chassis and the vehicle that we've designed and then we optimize around that because there are always trade-offs and most people probably don't know this but when you are able to put your feet underneath like the second row seat you can put your feet underneath the front seat that's always a very passionate engineering design discussion because you want to make sure that the foot of the second row occupant is not crammed back underneath he's, he's able to move it when you move also in the second row, adding a sliding second row is to me absolutely critical in any third row vehicle. From the standpoint of, okay, we package the, the big, as you Mario, you meant, six foot four can go into that third row. But if we have to, if he's not comfortable, he doesn't have enough leg room back there, or if we have to move the seat so far forward that the second row occupant isn't has comfortable, no, yeah, has right. no comfort. So. It's a long involved process to balance comfort of the occupant with the space of the vehicle and the attributes and the features and functions. Talk a bit about um, climate control and you know just keeping people comfortable, especially say people in the second and third row. Uh, that's, you, you have you know, a, a bigger thing to deal with, right? A, just a bigger envelope that you have to keep either heated or cooled or are right or wrong and and you know very and then you have different people with different d needs and desires in terms of uh, temperature like my wife and myself uh, oh yeah talk walk us through that so what we did create is a is there's a three zone and a four zone uh hvac system in the car when i say three zone what that means is it has a driver and front row passenger can independently adjust their temperature 
and then the second row customers can independently adjust their customer to the to the uh, same level. Mm -hmm. In other words, the four zone allows every single first and second row customer to adjust the temperature for, for what their liking is. But we actually, we started with that and then one of the items that I think we took it to the next level with is we added for the second and the third row uh, HVAC vents in the pillars. The, the historic way of executing cooling and heating, or I'll say mostly cooling for the third and, and uh, second row is we put vents in the ceiling. Right. These vents are effective and they've been a good practice, but when you're talking the Grand Cherokee, you're talking about how do I get better? How do I take it to the next level? We move the vents to the pillars so that you can adjust the air exactly where you want it. And studies have shown most people are most comfortable, particularly with uh, cooling, when they can have cool air on their face. So allowing them to position it onto their face and then when they don't want it, it goes into the cabin, they can adjust it, is the most effective way to do it. Mm -hmm. Now I will share with you that challenge, we also upsized the, the unit, the HVAC unit in the car to accommodate for the increased volume in the car and also these additional pillar vents so that we made sure we had the right balance of airflow throughout the entire cabin. Got it, got it. Well, uh, we're coming to the end of the time we've got here. What are things that I have not talked about or we have not talked about that you really think uh, the consumer who's considering a three-row SUV should be looking at? How the Grand Cherokee L matches that, matches up with that? So it's a Jeep. And more than anything else, you know, the, uh, the ability and the capability of off-road, when you get an 18-inch or 24-inch snowstorm, or you have to get back to the cabin for whatever reason, the capability is there. And it's no compromise. This is a Grand Cherokee. We've increased the capability and given you that cargo volume. There are plenty of three rows out there that I realize you can choose from. I think very few, if I could be so bold as to say none, perform at the level of the new Grand Cherokee L. Well, and I think that is the difference, right? I mean, the essential cheapness of this vehicle is the differentiator for you. You guys recognize that and you've engineered against it. It's the capability that Jeep customers expect and confidence. I don't have to worry about it. I'm in a Jeep. Well, Tom Seal, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jack. I really enjoyed this. Appreciate it. And stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. And that was our interview with Tom Seal. He's vehicle line manager on the Jeep Grand Cherokee L, the seven-passenger, up to seven-passenger SUV from Jeep. Very, very cool vehicle. Uh, I will do a road test of this in an upcoming show, so stay tuned for that coming up. Look for that in, in an upcoming episode. I also want to thank Gino Effler for uh, pinch hitting. He's a great hitter all the way around and a great pinch hitter on the show. Thanks so much for being with us, Gino. Jack, always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And, uh, uh, you know, it's always a thrill uh, to be on the radio with you. I have to say that. It's honest. Well, I'm glad it's honest. And, of course, uh, J.D. Power is where you work as the Director of Corporate Communications. And J.D. Power has a lot of information that is very valuable to car buyers and car owners. Where would our listeners find that information, Gino? They can go to uh, our website at jdpower.com. And that is our uh, our car shopping site. Just go to jdpower.com. That's the place to, to find all the information you want. 
Terrific. And again, thanks so much for being with us, Gino. And thanks to, uh, so much for all of you for being with us. We do appreciate you listening to us at America on the Road. Trying to help you out is why we do what we do. So for Gino Epler, this is Jack Nerad thanking you for being with us. Please join us again next time for another edition of America on the Road. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com.